This is the Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Be diligent to present yourself or prove to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, handling accurately the word of truth. We welcome you this hour for our first time listeners. This is the Bible line. And for the next hour, we'll be taking people's questions. We've been away for the last two Tuesdays. I've had funerals during both this, both these hours, but we're back here in the studio today. And if you'd like to call us, you can. The local number is 843-525-1859, Or if you're an internet listener, and we have a lot of people listen through the internet, WAGP.net live streams around the world, and you can reach us at our 877 number. It's 877, the call letters WAGP 980. Or if you prefer, you can text us right here into the studio, and that address is TBL for the Bible line, TBL at WAGP.net. When you call, you can go on the airline, or if you're more comfortable, you can just simply dictate your question to uh, Deb, who's taking the phone calls today. Well, let's go ahead and we'll get started this morning, Rick. All right. We've got some live callers lined up. Let's go to our first right now. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Good morning, Rick. This is Anthony. How y'all doing? How you doing, Pastor? Good. Thank you, Anthony. Thanks for calling today. What can we do to help, brother? Well, I just want to say thank you for the book of Daniel. That was a real good trip for us to understanding the book of Daniel. It's still kind of rough on me trying to understand everything, but I'm looking forward to Revelation as well. Yes, sir. Uh, Question. Would you say the word genocide and the word abortion is the same, or could you use them the same? And if if it's the same, is that a demonic, is that a demonic act? And I'm going to listen to you. It's a great question, uh, Anthony, uh, in reference to abortion. Is it demonic and a demonic act? Well, it could be. Uh, the word genocide literally means the deliberate killing of a large group of people, uh, especially typically it's used in reference to a particular ethnic group or nation. Um, with that said, I'm not sure uh, abortion in reference to a particular ethnic group or nation where people are targeting them, that you might be able to apply the word genocide, but you could apply the word murder to either group. And if you limit the definition of genocide to the killing of a large group of people, then certainly that would apply. I mean, we talk about 60 million plus Americans who are missing, but we've led the world by example And now there are supposedly some 400 million people worldwide since the uh, passing of Roe v. Wade that have been exterminated. So this is a terrible, terrible thing. And of course, as you have a low view of life with infants in the womb, then people will typically have a low view of life with people outside of the womb. 
And so old people, well, you know, let's just uh, not give them the care they need. Uh, They've had enough time. They've had enough uh, life on this earth. So we're just going to let them die. Hey, listen, uh, if uh, the Affordable Care Act kicks in in terms of all the terms and it's going unfolding over a course of a number of years, there will be people in some hospitals who will make that decision for your elderly mom and dad and you won't. Uh, That's where we are headed. Uh, I just heard a frightful statistic uh, here in our own station. It came through on the news the other day. And they were speaking about um, those percentage of people who thought abortion was uh, okay. And uh, 77% of Roman Catholics thought abortion uh, was fine. Uh, That was a little shocking to me. Uh, The number was about the same for assisted assisted physician suicide. They put it at 76%. They said 50% of Protestants had no problem with assisted Uh, physician suicide. But the most shocking thing, and I suppose it's not all that shocking because more and more the term evangelical has been so watered down. Uh, They said that only, um, they said 66% of evangelicals were against physician assisted suicide, meaning 44% were in favor of it. Well, it should be zero. If you're really an evangelical, by evangelical, we mean the term Bible-believing Christian, because God is very clear that life begins at the moment of conception. And so there are millions of people who should have been born, but their parents were aborted as babies. Uh, Just millions of Americans who are not here. And it's tragic to see what is happening Um, even, you know, the largest group of people who are actually performing abortions right now in America, Anthony, is the African-American community. The stats are out there. And that's, that's sad. Um, I think Planned Parenthood has educated a whole new generation of people to have a cheap view of life. And what is happening is, is they're killing their babies in the womb. And of course, the strongest proponents for abortion are typically people who have had them. And so when you've had an abortion, uh, you don't know how to deal with the guilt. And if you don't know how to deal with it, then you become a proponent for it because it somehow softens the blow to the psyche, to the inner depths of your soul to say, well, what I did was okay. And so it becomes a denial and people who deny sin long enough, uh, Romans 1 teaches, become evangelists for sin. They not only know that what they did is wrong, they give hearty approval to those who join them in the process. So uh, the more godless our nation becomes, the more I'm afraid we're going to see a cheap view of life, whether it's in the womb or outside of the womb or old people, physician-assisted suicide. All these issues are growing uh, because we have turned our back on the living God. Good question. Let's go to the next one. All right. We've got another live caller standing by. Let's go to them. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Are you there? Yes. Yeah, go ahead. Hi, You're on you the air. Today? Good. Yeah. How can we help you today? Uh, I had a couple questions for you. Um, I live here in Beaufort, and I attend a church, and I was wondering about some resources that might be available for me. Okay. Uh, one for financial coaching and one for resources. I want to find out more about, I have a small business, um, insurance, and things like that. Can you lead me towards people that can help me with that type of information? Yeah, a couple a couple things right off. Uh, number one, we have a financial course 
that I think is uh, good, not just because I wrote it, but I spent a lot of time uh, working through the scriptures. You know, there are there are some good ministries out there and some that are ministries slash, you know, uh, a Dave Ramsey type who are appealing not just to Christians, but to the secular mind. And a lot of people have benefited from Dave Ramsey. I have one of his books that someone gave me and I just kind of thumbed through it. And I was a little dismayed because there was only three Bible verses in the whole book. Uh, what you do to really change a person's behavior is one, ideally they meet Jesus, they're born again, they have a, a new mind, and with that new mind comes a new capacity to think after the thoughts of God. We receive the mind of Christ, but the mind of Christ that God gives us at regeneration when we're born again, uh, we have to feed that new mind. Paul talks about don't being conformed to this world, but being renewed through the spirit of your mind. And so um, I wrote my own course. It's uh, 130 some pages long. I first begin with the issue of stewardship. What does God say about stewardship? And this is important because someday we will give an account as stewards. When we speak of stewardship of our money or our time or our bodies or our talents or our, you know, uh, spiritual gifts or acquired skills, someday we'll give an account to the living God as Christians in heaven to see how we use those. We're saved by grace, but we are rewarded by faithful stewardship. And many people in this life limit themselves dramatically uh, in terms of God being able to use them in the spiritual realm because of the way they handle money in the financial realm. Uh, Jesus uh, spoke to this issue of an unrighteous steward and how he had um, basically used money for the wrong reasons, for this life only. And so after he tells that great parable, he says, I say to you, make friends for yourself by the means of worldly riches or the mammon of unrighteousness, that when it fails, because it will someday, someday everything you own, someone else will own. Someday uh, our dollars, if we continue on the debt uh, projection that we are on will be worth absolutely zero. They'll be like the dollars in Rwanda. You can use them for kindling or wallpaper. We're headed towards that unless somebody is willing to dramatically change the path we're on. But he tells us to use worldly riches that when it fails, they may receive you into eternal dwellings. And so he uses in, the, in Luke chapter 16, when he tells the parable of the unrighteous steward who made friends through worldly riches, Jesus tells us that the sons of this age, meaning unbelievers, are often shrewder in the way they deal with their own kind than our believers, the sons of light. And so he says, in light of that, use worldly riches to make eternal friends. And then he says this, and this is what is so telling. He who is faithful in a very little thing is faithful also in much. And he who is unrighteous in a very little thing is unrighteous also in much. If therefore you have not been faithful in the use of unrighteous mammon, who will entrust true riches to you? And if you have not been faithful in the use of that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? So it begins the course with stewardship, recognizing that this is not my body, this is not my time, and in this case, this is not my money, it's God's, and he's made me a steward of it. So it begins with stewardship, recognizing that it all belongs to the Lord. Then we talk about what the money says about, what the Bible says about giving, what the Bible says about debt, what the Bible says about saving, what the Bible says about investing, and what the Bible says about planning. So we take all these broad categories, and then ultimately we put them 
uh, into a personal budget. What I've noticed over the years is that people who have their personal finances in order because they are following biblical principles are usually the people who are successful in business. A lot of people went down the tubes in the 2007, 2008, a downturn in the economy because they were really in violation of a lot of biblical principles. And when the faucet of money stopped, their debt was so huge, they just, uh, they just went out of business. Hey, listen, during those years, and some of them are still struggling with it, there were churches in America who had so much debt, they were paying interest only to the banks. The banks don't want to foreclose on a church because it looks so bad. But listen, uh, there's a lot of wasted money amongst God's people. So I would say, first, you need a biblical worldview of money. And as you uh, deal with this course that is focusing on your personal finances, all the principles apply across the board to, um, to a business. We also, from time to time, have held a, a kind of, a, a, you know, the course that we have where people... Uh, come in and they learn to write a resume and do job interviews and things like that. In that course that we offer from time to time, there are some people who come alongside and have mentored a number of people in their you know 30s or 40s who have been successful in the business realm, and they want to help you know the next generation uh, basically apply the biblical principles. We call it a job seeker seminar. But it's really more than that. So that might be something to consider as well. And certainly if you're in a healthy church, there should be people in that church who would make themselves available. By God's grace, that's certainly true here at Community Bible Church, because the principle of older women teaching younger women, older men teaching younger men, uh, that is affirmed very clearly in Titus chapter 2. Uh, is by the grace of God being lived out. So, you know, there's a lot of people who have a lot to offer, and they're not to sit on their hands, but they are to equip the next generation. But for starters, go to searchthescriptures.org, download the financial course, go all the way through it. When you're done with it, we actually have people in our church who are trained to evaluate people's budget. Uh, They go through line by line, If you're in debt, you need to know when you're going to be out of debt. I don't care what kind of debt it is, whether it's credit card debt or car debt or appliance debt or uh, mortgage debt. If you have a real plan, you will know when you are going to be out. If someone can't say to me at the end of the course, well, I'll be out of debt in March of 2018, then they haven't really done their work that the course is offering them. And so we make them first go through the course because we recognize to change behavior long term, the mind has to be renewed. And of course, the only people with the potential to have a truly genuine renewed mind are those who've had the second birth. That's not to say that unsaved people can't benefit from biblical principles. And so you've got Dave Ramsey's who, uh, you know, market the unsaved world. And a lot of people say, hey, I'm out of debt, you know, and they applied the biblical principles, and that's a good thing. Um, But for real long-term life change, 
especially where the whole family is on the same page. You, you want to go to the scriptures where that's my authority. And I'm not doing this just because Dave Ramsey says it, but this is actually what the word of God says. And someday as a steward, I'm going to give an account. So, uh, you know, we, we help people however we can, even people who aren't members of our church. Uh, I don't want to waste our counselor's time. So if they haven't gone through the course and filled out the entire notebook uh, filled in all the blanks and actually attempted a written budget, then we don't set up an appointment. But assuming they've done that, we'll set an appointment up with a, a, a financial coach of sorts who will come alongside and help. Great question. Let's go to the next one, Rick. 843-525-1859. If you have a question on today's Bible line and a listener from Eastman, Georgia, would like to know whether Satan uh, can read our minds or do we give him more credit than is warranted? No, the devil can't read your minds. Remember, he's a finite created being. Angels are not omniscient. They're like you and I. They are persons. Now, they're not human persons. We're created higher than the angels, the Bible teaches. But they still fit the definition of a person that the Bible gives and that they have mind, will, and emotion. And as people, uh, not as gods, they uh, have uh, limited ability. First Kings eight thirty nine is the verse that comes to mind where it says, You alone, O Lord, know the hearts of all the sons of men. Only God can read the human heart. And so only the Lord has that ability. Uh, God says in Psalm 139 that even before there is a word on your tongue, while the thought is still formulating, he knows what you are going to say. And of course, uh, the Lord Jesus, uh, because he's God in human flesh, as we'll celebrate each year at Christmas, because he's, uh, the, he is God incarnate. He also displayed that knowledge of what was going on in the hearts of men. He could read people's thoughts, so to speak. But the devil can't do that. Uh, it would take omniscience for Satan and his demons to be able to read our minds. But with that said... Satan has been soliciting people to evil for several thousand years. And so he understands something very often uh, without knowing exactly what we're thinking, how we might respond to the lure that he puts in the world system through his demonic armies. So the devil can't read your mind. Take, uh, take rest in that. Only God can. But the devil is still a fiery foe who hates you, um, and he has uh, millions of fallen imps who will try to tempt you. There are three forces that wage war against the believer, and if you go to the Back to Basics course that's at searchthescriptures.org, that is uh, offered there. And one of the classes deals with uh, how to deal with sin as a Christian. We call it experiencing God's love and forgiveness. And one section of that course deals with temptation and how the devil solicits people to evil. And so there are three forces that wage war against the Christian, the world, the world system around us, which Ephesians tells us is being energized by the God of this world, small g, referring to the devil himself. So he uses the world system. Uh, the flesh within is, can be pulled all by itself without any help from the devil or a demon. You know, someone says, well, the devil's attacking me. Well, probably not directly, uh, you know, but he certainly has uh, millions of aids called demons, and he throws his fiery darts through them. 
But sometimes we're just carried away by our own sinful, evil desire. James chapter one teaches that's the flesh. That's the sinful nature within. There's the world system. There's the flesh and there's Satan himself. And by Satan, I mean, not necessarily a direct attack from him, but he's organized and he has legions and legions of fallen unholy angels that are called demons who work against us. So sometimes, you know, Satan just may work himself against the one person who knows in turn can influence millions of persons. So he works in the heart of some uh, movie director to create some filthy sensual movie that he knows millions will watch and like. And uh, he works through that. It's the world system. And uh, so with that said, God gives a common way of escape for each temptation. And we cover that very carefully in that uh, particular handout that, again, is in the Back to Basics series at searchthescriptures.org. Good question. Let's go to the next one, Rick. All right. Uh, You mentioned on a previous Bible line the Geneva Bible. This uh, listener says, I have four versions of God's Word that I study, the KJV, the New King James, the NIV, and the New American Standard. Uh, First, they'd like to know, would you mind sharing which version of the Geneva Bible that you have, uh, or would you recommend which version would be best? Well, the Geneva Bible was, you know, produced by some of the Protestant reformers. Uh, John Knox was involved, uh, Theodore Boza, John Calvin— And it was really in response to um, Bloody Mary, who is persecuting Christians and having them slaughtered. Uh, If you read English history, you discover they go back and forth between, you know, a Protestant king and then a Catholic king. And the Catholic kings would slaughter the Protestants and some of the Protestants would slaughter the Catholics. Just because they were Protestants didn't mean they were born again. I mean, King Henry VIII, who started the Anglican Church, basically started it because the Catholic Church wouldn't give him a divorce. And he wanted to divorce. I think at that time it was his fifth wife. He had eight wives, and um, they wouldn't issue him a divorce, so he said, I'll start my own church. And so the Anglican church was kind of a blend between Roman Catholicism and Protestantism. And certainly, King Henry VIII, unless at his last moments of life, you know, turned to the Lord, he, he, he died a lost man. But with that said, uh, the Geneva Bible was born in 1557, and it went through actually a number of revisions But most people today, when you buy a Geneva Bible, you're buying the 1559 edition. And if you uh, just Google it online, you can find, I think the one I have is from Tola Lege Press. And if you, uh, and the one I have also has, um, uh, it comes with a a disc so that uh, a CD that if you want to do searches through the Geneva Bible, you can. But it was certainly a good uh, translation for its day. It was the very first English Bible in its entirety, both Old and New Testaments, that used the original language in the translation process. Some of the early English Bibles that came out were translating the Latin, Vulgate, or other things. But this was the first entire English translation that used the original languages. It also was the very first uh, English Bible that had complete chapter and verse divisions. Some had chapters, 
Uh, this was the first that had chapter and verse divisions, and it was the first English Bible to use what we call italics, something that's used to this day. Now, in modern usage, italics are usually done for emphasis. So if you want to emphasize a word, or sometimes for grammatical purposes, you know, a book title needs to be put in italics, or it can be in uh, regular Latin letters, but has to be underlined. Um, but in the Bible, when you see italics, please don't uh, confuse it with its modern usage. Italics in today are indicating words that are not part of the original, but are typically implied in the original. Uh, so sometimes when you go from an original language to a receptor language, the tongue you're translating it into, uh, you have to sometimes add words to make it uh, grammatically correct in the receptor language and something that might already be understood in the language that it's being written from. And that's certainly true with Greek and Hebrew. So occasionally you will see italicized words and they put them there as a matter of integrity to let you know that they are not part of the original text. Um, what was also kind of unique about the Geneva Bible was the marginal notes that they put in. Uh, and they had cross-references, and they had kind of a mini concordance. So this was really the first study Bible that was ever produced. And so I think they had, you know, over 150 different editions uh, where they kept refining it and so forth. Uh, by the way, this was the Bible of early America. This was the Bible the pilgrims carried. They didn't want to carry the King James translation over, uh, because uh, they were really rebelling against the Church of England. They felt like the state church was really uh, crushing their biblical freedoms, and it was. Uh, so they thought, well, we're not going to use uh, the King James Version of 1611. So when they came here with pilgrims in 1620, they came with the Geneva Bible in their hand. Eventually, it became more and more difficult to read because the English language was changing. So when you see in the back of some car, you know, I read the 1611 King James Bible, I doubt it. And I would still ask that person if I had a dialogue with them, are you reading the 1611A version or B version? Because as soon as the first 1611 version was done, uh, a matter of months later, they came out with a second version. Uh, because these guys were trying to understand certain, especially Hebrew words, because they were a little bit limited. Uh, today, when we speak of not the New King James, but the Old King James Version, that says in the front, 1611, you're actually reading the 1769 translation. It's the fifth revision of the Old King James, of the first King James Bible, where there's actually over 100,000 changes. And so what happened with the Geneva Bible is eventually it just got more and more difficult to understand because English was changing so fast. And so people ended up gravitating then to the King James translation. Great question. Let's go to the next one. All right. We have a live caller standing by. Let's go to them now. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Good morning. First of all, I want to thank Pastor Brogy for his strong teaching and, and how it's helped me to be more strong in my faith and stand on the Word of God. Well, thanks for that encouragement. I appreciate that. Pray for me as I come to mind. What can I do to help you today? Well, it's kind of a tough question. I know the Bible tells us, I think it's like over 400 times, that God is sovereign. And a friend and I were discussing the election. And I understand that we have free will. We voted. We, you know, the people chose. But if God is sovereign, he obviously knew that in his plan who was going to be president to fulfill whatever is going to happen in the future. 
But this friend kept saying, no, that really God had no hand in it. And I'm thinking, he I would think he certainly did have a hand in it in some way, shape, or form. So what do you think, and how can I discuss this better? Well, the Apostle Paul wrote these words in Romans 13, and I've preached verse by verse through the book of Romans. I've done a ton of sermons on Romans over two and a half years, and you might want to go and listen to the two, uh, the two messages I did just in the first eight verses of the 13th chapter. But the chapter opens with these words, let every person be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, he who resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. Now, this is interesting because when Paul writes this, Nero is the emperor of Rome. In fact, there are persecutions that are getting ready to break out just a few short years later where Christians will suffer in untold ways. Uh, one of the things that Nero does is there's a big slum section in the city of Rome, and he is a um, rebuilder of sorts, and so he has the slums burned. And when the people find out he did it, he said, I didn't do it, the Christians do it. You know, these people are always talking about, you know, pulling down fire from heaven. They did it. They're the pyromaniacs. And then in order to justify his own wickedness that resulted in the death of so many, and the loss of the little these people had is he made Christians an example and he had them dipped in oil and there were human torches in his gardens. And yet it is in this context when Nero is in charge where he says, for there is no authority except from God and those which exist are established by God. So how do we understand that? Well, in a couple of different ways, there are three institutions of authority that God has established. There is the family, the first institution that God establishes. There is government, which God establishes in Genesis 9. And then there is ultimately the church. The church is a New Testament phenomena uh, that didn't exist in the Old Testament. God initially worked through one unique group of people, Israel, but he changes that under the new covenant. And now he's working through a body of both Jew and Gentile that he refers to as the church. So God is the one who establishes authority. With that said, he gives the Neros, he gives the Hitlers, he gives the Donald Trumps the authority that they have. And knowing that makes them accountable. Now we live in a republic and part of our privilege as Americans is we can vote our consciences. Now, it is sad. It, you know, I don't know how, what it finally turned out here. It's still in the uh, making in terms of the actual numbers. But to take it back to the prior election, only 50% of evangelicals were registered to vote, and only 50% of those who were registered actually voted. I think it was different this time. But still, as Christians, we have a responsibility to act as salt and light. And so we live in a republic, which is a government of the people, for the people, and by the people, and we should get out and vote. We should put uh, shoe leather to what we believe. And we shouldn't just, you know, vote for anyone. We should vote for, I think, the very best possible candidate. Some did not feel like we had that choice. They could not possibly vote for a Democrat 
knowing the stance that Hillary Clinton took against little babies. Uh, She was in favor, as is her husband, of the murder of babies in the womb. And so most, at least Bible-believing Christians, I know there's a lot of people who call themselves Christian and even now evangelical, and I quoted in the opening question today that only 44% of so-called evangelical Christians are against physician-assisted suicide. So there's people who wear the term who are anything but evangelical. But God is sovereign. In other words, nothing happens apart from God's notice. And while God doesn't endorse everything that happens, God allows things to happen. So if you have a wicked people who vote for a wicked ruler, God is not going to override their free will. Now, still, that's an authority that he established. So Paul tells the uh, Christians here in the city of Rome to make sure you pay your taxes. Peter is going to say the same thing in his letter in 1 Peter chapter 4. Honor to whom honor is due, tax to whom taxes do. You say, well, I don't want to pay taxes to a government that's wicked. Well, God says you better. Uh, you have to, but you should do everything, too, that you can for that government. You may not like the leader we have today. Uh, You may not have liked our current president, uh, but God commands us to pray for those who are in authority over us. We are commanded. And if Christians, I suppose, prayed as much as they complained, maybe our government would be far different from the way it is. So there's always this tension between God's sovereignty and human responsibility, whether it's in salvation, where God is sovereign in opening the hearts of men and women and boys and girls to the gospel. No one can come to the Father unless the Father draws them, Jesus said. But men can resist that drawing ministry of the Spirit of God, the one who came to convict the world, and the world means world. God wishes that none should perish, but that all should come to repentance. When God says he loves the world, he's not just talking about the elect, he's talking about all people. And so God loves people, draws people, but he gives people a free will. He doesn't supersede their free will. A person can suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And uh, people can give credence to an evil ruler. I mean, look at Hitler and what he did. And the millions of German people. And we owe the Germans a great debt in America today because of the Protestant Reformation that in some respects was led out of Germany. But Satan ended up attacking that country and ended up convincing the German people that Hitler was okay. Uh, And that's very, very sad. Um, But they had a free will and they had the ability to choose. Anyway, uh, that's the quick answer. I would suggest you listen to the sermon on Romans 13, I deal with issues like, well, was it right for the American Revolution to take place? Uh, when it says, you know, obey those who are in leadership over you, and America was supposedly in subjection to the English crown, and were the early Americans right to rebel? And so I deal with issues like that, hard issues, and again, this uh, balance between divine sovereignty and human responsibility. Uh, I think if you listen to those two messages, the first two in Romans 13 that I give, uh, you will get some, I think, helpful information. Let's go to the next question. All right, very good. We've got another live caller on the air. Let's go to them now. Thanks for holding. Uh, good morning. You're on the Bible line. Hello. Uh, yeah, go ahead. You, we, we, we lost you for a second, but you're back on the air. What can we do? Oh. 
Sorry. Let's go to the next question. They can call back if they want. We've had one dictated, so let's go there. Yes, our next caller would like you to explain Genesis 49.10. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until Shiloh comes. Also, uh, could you give some reference points to explain this scripture? Well, what I would encourage you to do to get the long answer, because they're just stacking up here today, is to go to searchthescriptures.org. Click on Genesis, and I preached, I think, 54 sermons in the book of Genesis, verse by verse, chapter by chapter. And, of course, I deal with this particular chapter and every single verse in it. Uh, It's a prophetic passage that is dealing with the Messiah. And uh, God, uh, all the way through the Old Testament, continues to narrow the focus so by which we can know whom the Messiah will be. And so Abraham has a couple sons initially, Ishmael and Isaac. And while God did bless Ishmael as he promised and made him a great nation, he chose Isaac to be the son of promise. And Isaac had a couple boys, Jacob and Esau. And uh, Esau was a worldly man, the New Testament, when we have commentary on his life. And God chose Jacob over Esau, which is really what the Hebraism means. It's a Hebraism of choice. When God said, Jacob, I loved Esau, I hate it. And of course, he chose the descendants of Jacob over the descendants of Esau. Uh, That verse that's found in Malachi that's used in Romans 9 Uh, goes back to the book of Genesis where God does a divine sonogram and he says two nations are in your womb and he speaks of these two nations where one will rule over the other and so he keeps tightening the focus and then he makes it clear that the Messiah is going to come from Judah the scepter will not depart from Judah so out of the 12 sons that Jacob has who's renamed Israel one of his sons is named Judah And of course, uh, this is uh, Israel or Jacob on his deathbed, and he's speaking prophetically, if you study the chapter carefully, about each of the 12 tribes, not just the 12 sons, but the descendants who will come from them. And of course, God tightens the focus even more when he teaches it's not just the tribe of Judah, but it's the family of David. And so uh, David is going to be the one from his loins who will come the Messiah. So Shiloh is a messianic term, and he's speaking about the ruler's staff from between his feet until Shiloh comes. And so God is going to fulfill this promise in in its entirety. When Messiah was announced by the prophet Isaiah, uh, God made a wonderful promise that at this point, has only been partially fulfilled, that still is going to see fulfillment. And it's the same promise that God made to uh, Mary in the announcement that she would carry the Messiah. And you see expressed in her prayer what we call from Latin, the Magnificant. And so God said, a virgin will um, be with child and bear a son and his name will be called Emmanuel. We often quote this verse at Christmas time, Isaiah uh, chapter 7 and verse 14. And by the way, the word for virgin in the Greek Old Testament, the Old Testament was originally written in almost all Hebrew, a few chapters in Aramaic. But uh, in the Greek translation, which is what most Jews read in the first century, and when you study your New Testament and you see some kind of type change set, whether it's all caps or italics showing you, however your publisher 
based on the translation you are reading, decide to um, set apart Old Testament verses, you will see that when you go back and sometimes read it from the Old Testament, it says in essence the same, but maybe not exactly the same word order, or it uses maybe a little different words to express it. That's because they're quoting the Septuagint. And so when God uses the word virgin in the Septuagint, just like in Matthew chapter one, he uses the word Parthenos, which uh, is a word that is in reference to a literal virgin, not just a young maiden. And then a little bit later, he says, for a child will be born to us and a son will be given to us. So there, that's not a Hebrew parallelism. He's talking about two things. A child's going to be born. That refers to the humanity of the Messiah. A son will be given. Uh, Jesus was sent into the world. You and I were just born into this world. Jesus was sent into this world. That's an affirmation of his deity and the governments will rest on his shoulders. That hasn't happened yet, but is going to, and he is going to take David's throne as Luke's gospel affirms. He will literally rule right now. Jesus is on the throne of his father in heaven, but there is coming a day when he will sit on David's throne and it initially will take place where he rules and reigns for a thousand years. And the promises that God made to Israel that are unconditional in nature, in spite of what reformed theology is teaching in our day, uh, those promises are literally going to be kept just as God said. Uh, but that's the real short answer. Go to uh, searchthescriptures.org. Click on Genesis, click on Genesis 49, listen to that hour and five minute sermon, and you will get a fuller answer. Good question. Let's go to the next one. They're stacking up here. All right. We've got that caller I dropped by accident. Sorry about that caller. You're on the Bible line. Go ahead. Hello, yeah, thank yeah. you very much. Okay. Glad, glad you called today. I, How can we help? I have got um, an ethical question here. <laughs> I get to teach on Simeon next week. Um teaching ladies Bible class, and I have been listening to your um, messages on Daniel and how you did the math and how you got it completely out of Scripture and figured it out and all those things and all those, which was awesome. I wish my brain was big enough to keep it all. Um, my question is this. Simeon was... Uh, told by the Lord in the Spirit that he would not die until he saw Israel's Redeemer. That's right. And would it be um, wrong of me to put in there that, that he did the math and the Lord blessed him for doing the math and figuring it out, and the Lord allowed him to see because he... He had to have known that he was that he was in the right era, right in the right years, and the Lord blessed him with that. I, and and I just don't want to, I don't want to stretch, but I don't. I he God doesn't do anything by accident. And no, he doesn't. So very clearly in the Bible, there were people who had an expectation that the Messiah was coming. And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem. I'm reading from Luke chapter two, for those who are not familiar with this text, this man was righteous and devout looking for the consolation of Israel. Why was he looking for the consolation of Israel? Because God had promised the Messiah would come. And in Daniel nine, which is the sermon that she is referencing, and that is online, God gave an actual mathematical prophecy 
where he went from a particular date where a decree was issued to rebuild uh, the city of Jerusalem and the temple. And uh, he gives actually the exact number of days thereafter by which the Messiah will present himself to Israel. And when you do the math, it comes out to what we call Palm Sunday. And so the Lord Jesus on Palm Sunday presented himself officially as Israel's king. And the scripture says that after that presentation, Messiah would be cut off. And that's a term that can refer to just being excluded from a culture or put out of the camp, or it can refer to literal death. And of course, Messiah was cut off out of the land of the living. Isaiah 53, speaking of his crucifixion. And that's indeed what happened to him. And then after that, the city was going to be destroyed. So I tell my Jewish friends, if you're looking for a good candidate, for the Messiah, there was one who is predicted to come in AD 32. And after that, he would die and the city of Jerusalem would be destroyed. And that all happened just as God predicted it. So with that said, Simeon's reading the Old Testament scriptures, much like the Magi, no doubt, much like Anna, the daughter of Phanuel from the tribe of Asher. And she knows what the Old Testament scriptures teach. Why? Because they're godly people. They're righteous and devout people. They're searching the scriptures. They're studying the word of God. So they knew it was a time frame. Now, he didn't know. He knew, okay, well, look, based on this calculation, you know, he has to be cut off. He has to die sometime about 30 years from now. And so whether, you know, he didn't know exactly how old the Messiah would be when he would actually be crucified and so forth, but he knew he was living in that time frame. And then I think God honored that. Uh, by revealing to him by the Spirit of God that he would literally see the Messiah before his eyes were shut in death. And of course, when Mary and Joseph come in uh, to the temple, when the days of purification were complete, following the law of Moses to present uh, him as the Lord, as the firstborn male that they have, um, you know, God allows him to hold the Messiah in his arms. And of course, that great response, now, Lord, you did let now let your bondservant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people, Israel. So, you know, God reveals truth to people who are obedient to truth. And because he was not just a knowledgeable man, but a devout man, a godly man, uh, because he was that kind of person, he obeyed what he knew God was able to give him more truth. And this truth came by direct revelation. Uh, he didn't know whether he knew the time frame. You know, it's it's got to be near, uh, but I'm an old man. I'm not sure I'm going to be able to see it, but God allows him to see the Messiah himself. So no, I don't think uh, you're, you're off track. I think you're right on track. Good question. Let's go to the next one, Rick. All right. A reminder that if you uh, have missed any part of this or any other Bible line, you can always go to our website at wagp.net. Click on the, uh, the Bible line past uh, programs, and you can go ahead and uh, listen to those. Uh, also, you can do a search on any question you may have, and we may have answered that in the past. You'll just uh, go in the, up in the search uh, tablet there and type in your question, and you should get some response. A woman has set up a, a prayer room, but she feels overwhelmed by the amount of prayers she has. Is there a good way to organize one's prayers? Well, the the passage that comes to mind, and, and, and I think 
I could be wrong, um, that your question might be precipitated by a um, movie that came out. It was about some person in a prayer room. The War Room. Okay. All right. I've not seen the movie, but people have... I've heard about it and so forth. But Jesus made this statement in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 6. He's dealing with three issues in particular to really expose the hypocrisy of the Pharisees of the day. And he speaks of uh, giving, fasting, and praying. And here in Matthew chapter 6 in verse 5, he says, And when you pray, you are not to be as the hypocrites. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogue and on the street corners in order to be seen by men. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. But you, when you pray, go into your inner room. And the Greek word here for inner room is the Greek word timaeon. And it referred to a a secret room, an inner storage room in a house. Or sometimes a room where you kept your most precious prized belongings to keep them from thievery. And so he says, go into your inner room. And uh, then he says, and when you have shut your door, pray to your father who's in secret and your father who's in secret will repay you. Now, the three things that he is dealing with, prayer, fasting, and giving can all have public expressions. There's public prayer in the Bible, Acts 4, where the whole church is gathered in prayer, like in Acts 2 and a number of other places. Even in the model prayer that he's about ready to teach, he doesn't say, when you pray, pray in this way, my Father who's in heaven, but our Father who art in heaven. He's assuming that God's people are praying together, that they're praying corporately. And we have a prayer meeting every Wednesday evening at our church in order to to do that, to share uh, specific needs that people have in the body and to lift up one another. Um, so we need a time of public prayer, but it begins with prior private prayer. If the only time I ever pray is in public, then I'm really a hypocrite. And so there needs to be a place. Um, I don't know what your place is. Some people say, well, my car is my prayer closet. Susanna Wesley, she was an interesting lady. Of course, the mother of Charles and John Wesley, two of her most famous sons. She had 19 children. If I remember, nine of them died Uh, as young infants in the early uh, few years of their life. A few of them were twins, if I remember. But she used to say, I'd sit on my kitchen chair, and she would take her apron, and she'd throw it over her head, and she made that her, quote-unquote, prayer closet. And God certainly used her. She's dubbed the mother of Methodism, though she never wrote a book or ever preached a sermon. But she's the one who had this incredible influence on two of her children that helped spearhead the movement here in the United States. But my guess is, is that you've seen this movie and maybe you think, well, I need to have this war room or whatever for prayer. Uh, I'm a little concerned with some of the emphasis that I've heard that some people have in their quote unquote war room where they, you know, directly pray to Satan and I declare or I overrule you or I over, I rebuke you, Satan. And You don't really find that in the scripture. In Jude 9, you find Michael, the archangel, who himself would not directly rebuke the devil. But he said, the Lord rebuke you. Uh, But with that said, um, you need a place where you can get alone with God, where you can block out the world, where you can get on your knees or on your face before God and pour your heart out to him. And I don't know what that place is for you. I have a literal closet at home. It's my clothes closet in my office. I have a prayer closet uh, that I can go in and shut the world out and I can pray. 
Now, I will say this, that there are varying gifts in the body of Christ. And one spiritual gift is the gift of faith. Faith, And one common expression of the gift of faith is that that kind of person tends to have a greater burden to pray for others than maybe other folks do. Now, we should all pray, and we should all pray without ceasing. But there are some people who that is a focus, a major focus of their life in ministry. Just like we are all called to do the work of an evangelist, but some people have the gift of evangelism. And they spur people who don't have the gift of evangelism to do the work of an evangelist. And people with the gift of faith will often spur people with uh, uh, the need to pray and to see God's hand moved by prayer. And so sometimes a Christian will see someone else who has a gift in a particular area and they try to imitate that person on the same level. And you shouldn't, um, you know, I don't pray for everything. I don't have the gift of faith that expresses itself through prayer, but I pray as a regular uh, on a regular basis. It's part of my life. It's part of what God's called me to do as a Christian, but I wouldn't want to model my life after people who spend hours, some each day in their prayer closet because they have a different uh, spiritual DNA that God has written into their person on the day that they were converted. So, you know, don't, don't worry about, you know, pray, pray what God puts on your heart to pray for. And maybe if he has you write some of the things down in a book, uh, because you want to continually and habitually bring it before his throne and you don't want to forget that, then do that. But enjoy the Lord. Let pray in the spirit. Let God lead you as you pray and he'll show you what you need to pray for. Good question. Let's go to the next one. Okay. We've only got a couple of minutes. Let's go to a quick question from the online caller. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Yes. Good morning, everybody. Uh, thanks for taking my call. Uh, i got a quick question in the book of Samuel, second Samuel seven, David uh, wants to build a temple to God and uh, God told him no, because he had spilled so much blood. And I wonder what is actually spilling so much blood meant to God that I, he didn't allow him uh, to build a temple. Good question. We're almost out of time, but let me just see if I can at least briefly respond to it. Second Samuel seven is a very, very important chapter of scripture for one, and that it's one of those passages that I indirectly referenced in which God tightens the scope in showing who the Messiah will come through, that God made a promise to David that one of his descendants would sit on his throne. With that said, David plans to build a temple, wants to build a temple. He thinks, I'm living in a beautiful house, and God's living in a tent. At the time, it was called the tabernacle, though sometimes it's referenced as the temple. But it wasn't the permanent structure that would later be built on what we call the Temple Mount. And while God allowed David to plan it and provide a lot of the materials for it, he didn't allow him to build it because of warfare. David was a man of war. He led Israel in many, many, many battles. And he actually set the precedent for his son Solomon to come to the throne in a time of great peace in Israel, which led to a t- time of tremendous persp- prosperity in Israel's history, which unfortunately uh, resulted in their turning away from God, as God had warned uh, through Moses. He said, when you get into the land and you, you, know, you inherit uh, vineyards you didn't plant and cisterns you didn't dig and houses you didn't build, don't forget me. That's kind of what we've done in America today. We have forgotten God and his goodness to us. Well, 
David wasn't guilty of that. But in God's economy of who he wanted to build the temple, he did not want it to be done by a man of warfare, which is what David was. And David was in the center of God's will by being a man of warfare. We're out of time. Thanks for joining us today.